Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. Mistaken Identity by Richard Kay, based on the true story of Jennifer Thompson and Ronald Cotton. sat in a church in Burlington, North Carolina, not far from where I was assaulted, waiting to meet the man who served 11 years in prison for that rape. What do I call him? Mr. Cotton? Ronald Cotton? I mean, I don't even know what... Oh, God. Ronald Cotton had been a permanent picture in my brain. He was every nightmare I ever had ever since that night. See, I'd kept my eyes open. I'd studied his face. I needed to recognize every single feature about him. What is his voice? Does he have an accent? Did he have a piercing? Did he have a missing tooth? What did his hair look like? What were the shape of his eyes, his mouth, his nose? Everything about his face became paramount to my surviving. I would burn it into my brain. I would etch it into my memory. So that, when faced with those six men in the lineup, I could confidently say... Number three. You positive? 100%. It's him. Good job. That's who we thought it was. The affirmation of a flawed system meant that I could then, with absolute certainty, point my finger. Is the man who raped you in this courtroom? Yes, Your Honor. It's him, Ronald Cotton. In truth, everyone was failed. But the public needed someone to blame, and that had to be me. This was Ronald's story now. What am I even going to say? I'm sorry.
tell you years ago. I'm not angry at you. This. This was what grace and mercy is all about. This is what they teach you in church that none of us ever get. I used to pray every day of my life through those 11 years that he would be raped in prison, that someone would kill him. That was my prayer to God. And now here was this man who, with grace and mercy, just forgave me. How can you just... There was no reason to hold on to anger and to bitterness. If I was going to have to serve the rest of my life in prison, I had to find a way to live. I couldn't live in anger, so I found a way to forgive. I dreaded meeting him, but I had to do it once I'd found out. It was like someone had just taken my life and, like, turned it upside down. Miss Thompson, may I come in? Sure. Come on in. What now? We ran the DNA test with your permission. Good. And? We were wrong. It's not Ronald Cotton's DNA. It belongs to Bobby Poole. Bobby Poole? Bobby Poole. The man who I claimed in court that I had never seen before. The man who went on to attack another woman that night and committed 24 more violent crimes after that. The man who wasn't present in the lineup in which I was expected to find my perpetrator. I did what I felt I was supposed to do to help solve the crime. I did that to you. 11 years. Now, here we are, hmm? ready to move on, ready to be peaceful and experience joy and happiness. You can't do that if you hate. Oh, you are a remarkable man. Ronald gave me back my life that day. My heart physically started to heal that the one person who I had prayed to die would be the one person who would teach me to live. You're listening to the remarkable story of the state versus Ronald Cotton with our guest, Jennifer Thompson. Thank you, Jennifer. It must be hard to relive your tale. It's what I do. I guess I felt the need to atone for what I did. Hmm. And what about now? Now? Another 20 years on. Looking back, how would you say the wrongful conviction harmed you? I... Sorry. Well, hasn't something been done to you all? Surely for every exoneration, there's a crime survivor who was the first person to be impacted. Yes. Yes, there is. Sorry, can I just... Please, take your time. No one's ever bothered to ask how the wrongful conviction harmed me. Who 
there are concentric circles of harm, you know. We shouldn't need to give compassion to one and not the other. And they all come from the perpetrator, right? From Bobby Poole, surely. I guess I've carried the weight myself for too long. <laughs> Thank you. For what? <laughs> for the first time, I feel like I have permission to tell my story. And within my story is also that of my friend, Ronald Cotton. Jennifer Thompson. Thank you for speaking with us today. One final question, if I may. Do you and Ronald still keep in touch? Ron and I will always be close. He's a huge part of my life. In Mistaken Identity, Jennifer was played by Claire Websell. Ronald, the judge and the priest were played by Dominic Gately. The radio interviewer was played by Alice Proctor and the police officer by Johnny Byron. Mistaken Identity was written by Richard Kay and directed by Stephen Eskrit. It is a Radio Acting Days production for Script Yorkshire. Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. Per amarti. No, no, Lita. Per uscire. Cut up by Pete Goodland. The joyous, triumphant cascading as a knife fell flat. Incapacitated, the other boy fell, a deftly placed blade, recently slid from mother's kitchen drawer, drew the life of which it was never intended. A threat was only implied. Bread would still get sliced, as no doubt would others. An armoury of Sheffield steel still and Korean reservists all up for postcode ops. Then he ran, after-school foundation-level maths placed on hold, a college place this September. The running of trainers and the slamming of internal doors shook 50-year-old joists. Plaster no longer remained as stoic. Distant traffic, domestic scenes from open windows, late spring or early summer then, a kettle might be heard to boil, two mugs placed side by side for a chummy matey brew, sugar for her with the sweet tooth. 
and chocolate digestive for the pal just returned from her weekly shop. develops noticeably and children unaware somewhere play swings rough chains and blue plastic giggles and screams innocence a ball is kicked against a red brick wall it would have hit the post and gone wide whether a corner should have been given is fiercely contested Neighbours through these same open windows appear involved in some minor domestic infraction, nothing serious. He or she ought to clean the loo more often. They appear to be out of domestos. Radio news on the chime, trumpets jingles and a familiar trusting baritone. The drum and bass in flat 12 starts to vex those in flat 10 who remain unimpressed at next door's musical stylings. Such is a typical day on a typical hour in a typical town. A shout divorced from play and roundabouts pierces stairwells dank with piss. There's no chase to be spoken of. Elsewhere, a quickening heart lessens. Emergency services have yet to be contacted. Little urgency or concern felt on this warm evening. A curious stray sniffs and paws, soon becoming disinterested. A typical day. Upstairs, a mother suckles her newborn for all to witness. Proud, an exhibitionist, indifferent. The curtain is then drawn. Over a rusting tannoy from back in the day, the runners from a greyhound meet are announced. Bright spark is two to one on. Straining in the slips. The knife rests undiscovered. He, the boy, thinks... Shit, I get away with it. The same shall not be said for him, the victim. Another boy of a similar age, whose future mourners will soon be notified. 999. There, and anonymous. <laughs> The boy appears to be running faster now. Heartbeat quickens. At school, he is never the cocksure type. Arguably more reticent. A wallflower in English, doing the best he can in language and lit. For sure, he is no academic, but no fool, nor bully either. A mum and a sis who he loves. Boxing Saturday mornings and his team Saturday afternoon. Keeping his head down and nose clean, and all those other conveyor belt platitudes directed toward boys of his type. His type, on a typical day, in a typical town. 
sweat shifts, parched lips further dry and splinter, spit gone. A thought sticks. It was a warning, and only that. Just a warning. I wanted him off my shadow. No harm was ever to be meant. I carried it in case. Loads of us do. Nothing special. Insurance policy on the stairs, corridors, underpass and street. Security. Simple as that. A deterrent never to be used. Fuck. Use I did. What was I doing? Is he what? Is he? It was just a warning. Waving it about. I was never in a million years going to use it. Think I'm stupid or something. Fingerprints. Shit. We're not thinking. I stabbed him. My neighbour. Blue and white all through. What did he actually want? I was nervous. Too nervous. I didn't wait. Assumed. I assumed. Shit. Too much assumption. Knife out and in a boy. He crumples right there in front, lying at my feet. Fetal. I run. Knife gets chucked. Where? Fuck knows. Blue flashing, sirens on, head clanging like church bells on wedding days. Light flashing harder, blue crackling around corners. Doors all suddenly close, window latches bolt shut. No chummy chat over coppers and digestives. Lights close, sirens close, heavy boots. Close. In Cut Up, the boy was played by Johnny Byram and the narrator by Dominic Gately. Cut Up was written by Pete Goodland and directed by Stefan Eskreet. It is a Radio Acting Days production for Script Yorkshire. Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM.
Hello, this is Bob McBurney with the third story in the Sergeant Grimshaw series. Visiting Day and Sergeant Grimshaw's Meaningful Gaze. Sometimes on Friday, if he was to have the Sunday off, a dark cloud of gloom descended upon Sergeant Grimshaw. His whole weekend could be affected because Sunday, if at all, was the day that he visited his mother and then his grandfather. Both visits, though on the same day, were in different places, and both of them required that Sergeant Grimshaw adopt a different persona, neither of which were ones he would normally have chosen, had circumstances given him a better choice in the matter. His mother was hugely ambitious for him. Invariably, she sought reassurances that he was destined to reach the very top of his profession. To this end, she expected him to be networking, socialising and solving complex cases virtually single-handedly. It was a rare occasion when she greeted him without saying that some chief inspector or other had been on the six o'clock news, reassuring everyone that huge strides are being made in whatever case was making the headlines. She would follow this by saying something like, I looked for you at the very least. I thought you would be on the platform. Usually Sergeant Grimshaw would reply along the lines of, It's a much bigger case than you think, Mother. The public can't be allowed to know everything. I don't like to talk about this, but I have been undercover since my last visit. I shouldn't be telling you it's a matter of great sensitivity, almost national security. His mother would look unimpressed. National security, Mother. Momentarily mollified, but aware that his promotion had not been meteoric, she would question him about the social aspects of his life. Since that woman, whom you should never have married, left you, you've been living on your own. I look at the photographs in the back of the paper every weekend and I never see you. All the men I see have elegant wives, cocktail parties, golf clubs. Where are you? Sergeant Grimshaw didn't like lying to his mother, but the alternative was unthinkable. Over time, the stories which had begun as an attempt to avoid intrusive questioning had gathered pace, until white lies had morphed into a complete fantasy life. Once, in a futile attempt to avoid a couple of future visits, he'd introduced the possibility of being sent to Columbia to investigate links with the cocaine trade. This idea proved to be startlingly ill-judged, as his mother's response was dramatic. She insisted that he should be promoted immediately in order to undertake such a dangerous mission. She was confident that her own intervention with the powers that be would make this happen. To prevent her contacting the Home Office that minute, Sergeant Grimshaw was obliged to go through the pantomime of a fake phone call before being able to tell her that, surprisingly, plans had been changed. 
for reasons which involved political sensitivities and that the investigation was now on hold. Towards the end of any meeting with his mother, Sergeant Grimshaw was always stressed and sometimes perspiring freely. On one occasion, even now he puts his hands over his face when he thinks about it, he pulled a handkerchief out of his pocket to wipe his forehead and several pellets of rabbit poo fell on the carpet. What is that? shrieked his mother. Is it what I think it is? No, mother, of course not. They are cough sweets. She watched him suspiciously as he scooped them up. He forced a smile as he put one in his mouth and the rest in his pocket. He tried to hold the pellet in the pouch of his cheek without dissolving it whilst making sucking noises and coughing occasionally in the hope of adding credibility to the deception. His visits to his grandfather were just as challenging. His grandfather was well into his nineties. He lived in a residential care home which he believed to be a retirement home for railway workers. He had his own room which he rarely left. His sight was seriously impaired and he was confused about most aspects of his life. However, his knowledge of the main lines and branch lines of the North Yorkshire Moors was encyclopedic. This related to the years that he'd been a stoker before Dr. Beeching's cuts in the 1960s. Though he'd worked on the railways until retirement, his memories were fixated on these early years. More relevant to Sergeant Grimshaw than any of this was that his grandfather believed him to be a former colleague of his called Jack. It seems that they'd shared a footplate. In practice, what this meant was that before any visit to his grandfather, Sergeant Grimshaw had to spend time poring over old timetables and occasionally inventing episodes where stoic railwaymen had to contend with violent passengers or solve problems with leaking boilers or deal with major landslides or enormous snowdrifts. Usually, he would begin the conversation by saying something like, do you remember when that woman tried to get three geese onto the train at Beedale? His grandfather, who understandably had no such recall, would hesitate and then, anxious not to miss anything, would say, Yes, I remember. Were we both there? We were, Sergeant Grimshaw would say, and the conversation would gather pace. On one occasion, Sergeant Grimshaw made a determined effort to re-establish their proper relationship. His grandfather had greeted him by saying, Hello, Jack. My grandson's coming to see me today. Yes, Grandad, that's me. His grandfather looked at him guardedly and carried on talking. Moments later, his grandfather repeated the information, at which point Sergeant Grimshaw leaned forward and clearly and firmly said, I am your grandson, and I am here. His grandfather looked at him. I hear you, Jack. And, as if talking to someone with limited understanding, so you are both here. 
That was the end of that, back to the footplate. The final part of any visit invariably involved the reliving of a fictitious but hair-raising railway journey, a scenario which Sergeant Grimshaw might have prepared in advance. One such journey was Pickering to Scarborough. Seven minutes to Thornton Dale, then six minutes to Eberston, six more minutes to Snainton, on time, and all this in the foulest of winter weather. Sergeant Grimshaw had done his homework thoroughly. He recalled the whole journey in vivid detail. Sawdon, Wycombe, various bridges and crossings, Forge Valley, Seamer. Finally, triumphantly, he recalled steaming into Scarborough. His grandfather nodded and shared the journey. Those were grand days, he said. He looked slyly at Sergeant Grimshaw. But Forge Valley Line closed in 1950, he said. I must have been a bit young, but you remember it well, don't you, Jack? With more of a grimace than a smile, Sergeant Grimshaw had made his escape. Occasionally, his departure from the care home would be interrupted by the Birkinshaws, an elderly couple who believed that they were living in a hotel. Most days they left their room with the intention of going to the shops. They would stand by the front door in the hope that an innocent visitor would allow them to leave without them having to use the security exit code. The staff would use any excuse to prevent this, the favourite being that an imminent fire drill requires all hotel guests to return to their rooms. The Birkinshaws were resourceful. On one occasion they found an open exit into the staff car park. The cry went up, the Birkinshaws are out. The manager found them half a mile away, walking briskly towards the town. Trying to get them into her car, she was beaten by Mr. Birkinshaw with his walking stick. Passers-by reported a violent kidnapping of two elderly people. It should be said that Sergeant Grimshaw, a lonely man, single and insecure in his job, witnessed many of these things and reflected on the uncertainty of his own future. It was following such a visit to his mother and grandfather that, one Sunday evening, he decided that he should redouble his efforts to find a partner. Sergeant Grimshaw was not much given to introspection. In those moments when he'd made efforts to find some meaning in the patterns of his life, he'd found only perplexing confusion. The disquiet which came with these feelings discouraged him from delving any deeper into things and was usually followed by what he thought of as a sensible change of direction, usually a cup of tea and a reassuring cuddle with one of his rabbits. Even so, despite previous disappointment, he returned to the internet and for the twentieth time typed, how to find a wife. 
There it all was. How do I find a mate at forty? Get out of your comfort zone. Why, Mr. or Mrs. Wright? Why not, Mr. or Mrs. Will do? Do you need a makeover? So many pages, so much information, all of it useful, but to whom? Everything he read suggested that out there was a world full of people who might love him if only he had the courage to reach out. For whatever reason, that kind of courage eluded him. He envied other people's success, if that's what it was. His own efforts never seemed to get off the ground. Paralyzed with anxiety, he read and reread all the advice. In practice, it simply made him feel more unworthy. Then he found a page which he'd never seen before. It suggested that one should practice flirting, obviously in a safe place, by holding the gaze for a moment too long. Everything indicated that the results could be surprising. This seemed like something he might do. Excitedly, he read on, rehearsing the look by practicing it in the mirror. Later that day, after a great deal of nervous indecision, he plucked up the courage to try out his new knowledge. He drove to a supermarket on the far side of town. He stood near the banana display, from where he was able to observe a rather beautiful woman at the salad bar. She was trying to crush croutons into an already overflowing salad box. His intense, meaningful gaze, which in part was a combination of you are very attractive, I am available, please smile at me, I mean no harm, and your salad box is going to burst, was misinterpreted, or at least part of it was. The woman called to an approaching man who might have been her husband. After an angry look, he walked up to Sergeant Grimshaw and said several unkind things. In turn, this caused Sergeant Grimshaw to move hurriedly to the next aisle, where he spent some time studying cuts of bacon before buying several items that he didn't need and heading for the checkout and the safety of home. In the meantime, Constable Brenda was trying to think of a way in which she could meet Sergeant Grimshaw socially. She was hoping that she could catch him in an unguarded moment, somewhere in the town, so that he would have to invite her for a drink. She believed that alcohol would help to move things along. She felt instinctively that Sergeant Grimshaw needed someone in his life, and she longed to be that person. There was what could be described as a Sergeant Grimshaw and three rabbit-shaped hole in her life. At work, her intensity of feeling was hidden behind the veneer of their professional relationship. Nevertheless, her heart lurched when she saw him. An overwhelming instinct to protect was at the forefront of her mind, and it might be that lust played very little part in her thoughts. It's probable that the rabbits, which she loved, created an added value 
to Brenda's assessment of Sergeant Grimshaw's desirability. And so it was that eventually, though she failed to see the potential for disaster, a complicated plan involving anonymous letters began to form in her mind. Could it work? Anything is possible. We shall see. Life is so complicated. La-dee-da-dee-da. Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. This is Bob McBurney with the fourth story in the Sergeant Grimshaw series. Sergeant Grimshaw's Mystery Letters and Madame Juicy Lucy. The first letter was on the doormat when Sergeant Grimshaw came down to breakfast. It was on folded, plain, white paper, strongly scented with perfume. The message was simple. Dear Rocky... Would you like to meet me? Tinkerbell. To say that Sergeant Grimshaw was startled would be an understatement. He was astonished. The letter was unexpected, and the wording was so abrupt that his instincts told him that it must be a joke. He read and reread it. He turned it over and looked at the back. He held it up and tried to look through it. It occurred to him that whoever had delivered it might be waiting outside in the hope of witnessing a reaction. He dropped to his knees and peered through the letterbox. Nothing that he could see. Aware of the need for stealth, but feeling foolish, he stayed on his knees and crawled across the hall and into the sitting-room where, with the wish to remain unseen, he intended to raise his head slowly and peer out through the window. As he crawled, two of his three rabbits, Margaret Thatcher and Stanley Baldwin, the third rabbit, Dennis Healy, was trying to get into the dishwasher, hopped along with him, under the impression that this was a game. Although he was always affectionate, it was unusual for him to be such fun in the morning, and in their own rabbity way they really appreciated it. Despite their close attention, he reached to the window and peered out. 
the street was empty. He took the letter into the kitchen and put it down next to his breakfast tray. What an extraordinary thing, he thought. Anyway, it can't be for me, Rocky. Who on earth is Rocky? Who is Tinkerbell? It must be a joke, he said. And then he got cross, mainly through frustration, and shouted, It's not funny, in quite a loud voice which sent all three rabbits hopping away into places of safety. Later, before leaving his house on the way to work, he found that the perfume was difficult to wash off his hands. Despite his best efforts, he had to suffer the ignominy of Rosie Clatworthy sniffing pointedly and saying, "'Had a good night then, Sarge?' in a voice loud enough for everyone to hear as he walked into the office. The letter and its contents troubled him for several days. Eventually he came to the conclusion that there'd been a mistake, that it had been intended for someone else, and therefore that it had been posted to the wrong house. Then the second letter arrived. Dear Clint, I meant what I said. Cinderella. The same perfume. The same paper. It's difficult to exaggerate the effect that this letter had on Sergeant Grimshaw. During the days that followed, whenever work permitted, he searched unsuccessfully through public records and police files for anybody called Rocky or Clint. He began to imagine that he was being watched. At home he kept the curtains closed. He groomed his rabbits and talked to them at length with an emphasis on personal security. Any hopes that the sender had of exciting his romantic interest were lost in an atmosphere of general anxiety. A third letter had a more fulsome message. Dear Brad, I call you that because I don't know your real name, but I do think you are very attractive. I've admired you from a distance. Would you be interested in a blind date? Princess Leah. This was dynamite. Sergeant Grimshaw's hands trembled as he read the letter. He ran into the kitchen and, propping the piece of paper against his teacup, he sat down hurriedly in order to regain his equilibrium. He read and re-read the letter as he ate his cornflakes. It was all so hard to believe. Could it be that she, the name suggested that it was a she, was telling the truth? Could it be a joke? He didn't feel attractive. Despite recognising his own foolishness, he went into the sitting room and stared at his own face in the mirror. He turned his head slightly to the left, then to the right. He sucked in his cheeks and dropped his chin to make his face look longer. He pulled his cheeks back. Sadly, the same familiar, slightly puffy face stared back at him. Despite inward warnings, common sense was cast to the wind. Vanity prevailed. It was at this point that he chose to believe in the letters. He was excited about meeting whoever it was who called herself Princess Lear. But how could he let her know? It occurred to him that by keeping the letter in his pocket, 
he might somehow be both emotionally and possibly physically closer to her. He knew that it wasn't a rational impulse, but he felt that it represented a step in the right direction, a commitment. The perfume was intense, so he found the sandwich bag, and folding the letter inside, he put it into his back trouser pocket. As he left the house, a large stray dog followed him, sniffing at his bottom, all of which added to his discomfort and the sense of surreality which surrounded the situation. In the office, Brenda could see that Sergeant Grimshaw was preoccupied. He was fumbling with paperwork, forgetting where he'd put his tea, and generally being irritated and irritating. She decided to write another letter as soon as she got home. Brenda had no way of knowing that Sergeant Grimshaw was in a heightened state of anticipation, that he was now so gullible that he would believe almost anything that she wrote. It should have been so easy for her to say, It's me, Brenda, I've been sending you these letters. They're meant as a bit of a joke, because I want to see you again. Of course, it wasn't easy. Had it been so, events might not have taken so unusual a turn. As it was, she finished the final letter with a liberal soaking of Shalimar and a kiss on the corner. She checked their work schedules and posted it through Sergeant Grimshaw's letterbox during the night. Dear Romeo, if you are free, could you meet me by the Fruit Market Cross at eight o'clock on Friday evening? I'm blonde, and I'll be wearing pink. Your Juliet. Early Friday evening in another part of town, a young man called George ran into the house, threw his tool bag into the hall cupboard, and raced upstairs to his bedroom. From the kitchen his mum shouted, Do you want something to eat before you go out, love? No, haven't got time. I'll get something at the club. In front of the bedroom mirror, George began the long ritual of preparing for his performance. Carefully, he cleansed his face and neck with moisturising cream and then began the slow job of putting on makeup. Even without makeup, George was magnificent. Six feet tall, a hawk-like beauty, a small, neat head, and the body of a dancer. With his makeup on, it was hard not to be completely seduced. Carefully, painstakingly, over a period of two hours, he applied products and colour, accentuating his eyes and mouth, slimming his cheeks, and shading his jawline. Then he began to dress. One thousand gram Juno drag breasts with a spike bra, silicon hip padded panties, body drag, thigh-high mesh stockings, a chiffon skirt, a pink short shrug top, platform boots with six-inch heels, and finally a lace-front blonde wig. At last, happy 
and with a final twirl he clomped downstairs just as the taxi pulled up outside the door. "'You look lovely, dear. Thanks, Mum,' he said. And at eight o'clock George, also known as Madame Juicy Lucy, set off to work. Sergeant Grimshaw was also dressing. He got all of his clothes out of the wardrobe and laid them on the bed. He'd done this many times, and despite all the advice on the internet about how to dress for a date, the choices never seemed to get easier. The acrylic ferrile jumper was casual, but was it too casual? His striped Henley boating jacket was smart, but might it be inappropriate for a Friday night in a landlocked city? His blue suit still fitted him, but it was tight. Still, if he left the jacket buttons undone, it might do. Miles away, Brenda, who had also dressed for the occasion, teased her blonde streaks in the hall mirror, put on her pink mac and headed towards the car. At ten to eight, in the little cobbled square off the old fruit market, Sergeant Grimshaw waited for his date. He was early and he was nervous. It was a lovely evening at the tail end of summer. Soon the evenings would be cooler, but for the moment it was warm and many people were in shirt sleeves. Sergeant Grimshaw was wearing his blue suit. He was perspiring freely. In the far corner of the square, hiding behind a bus shelter, Brenda was watching him. It could be that Brenda was testing him because at five past eight she hadn't moved. It could be that as the moment of truth arrived she lost her nerve. Whatever her reasons, the delay had a profound effect on the events which followed. It was apparent that Sergeant Grimshaw was becoming agitated. He was pacing up and down and looking around him and probably worrying that he might have misread the letter, that he might have made a mistake about the time or the place. In his anxiety he began to check the many small streets that joined the square. It was in one of these streets that he saw Madame Juicy Lucy. Madame Juicy Lucy was like a ship of state as she moved down the street. The taxi had dropped her as close as possible to the club and now she was walking through the pedestrian precinct. Walking is such an inadequate word to use as a way of describing her progress. Fully aware of her own magnificence and the effect that she was having on passers-by, she strutted, she waved and blew kisses. Sergeant Grimshaw felt as if a shockwave had hit him. Though he saw the pink and the blonde, he knew how unlikely it was, how impossible it was, that this extraordinary creature could have sent him love letters. And yet, when she smiled at him, it was so direct and so warm that he was reduced to helplessness. Irresistibly, he was drawn towards her, and despite any misgivings that he might have had, he heard his own voice say, Are you Juliet? Madame Juicy Lucy stopped suddenly. 
She was used to men making approaches, though usually they were more raucous than this. She laughed. Maybe I could be, but not tonight. Why do you ask? Already Sergeant Grimshaw was hugely embarrassed. People had stopped and were watching. Someone's been sending me letters, he whispered. What sort of letters? Well, love letters, he said very quietly. Well, you're a lucky boy, but I'm sorry, love, it wasn't me, she said kindly and began to move away. As she turned, she caught her heel on a cobble and stumbled. Fortunately, she didn't fall, but she did twist an ankle. Oh, bugger, she said, these bloody heels, that's all I need. I'm on stage in ten minutes. And then, as she lifted a foot to examine the damage, she reached back and putting a hand on Sergeant Grimshaw's shoulder, she said appealingly, You look so strong. Could you help me to the door? It's no distance. In that moment, and forgetting all else, Sergeant Grimshaw was spellbound. He would have walked with her to the ends of the earth. When Brenda next saw Sergeant Grimshaw, she was shocked to see him heading towards Clubland with his arm around the waist of a very tall drag queen. She, in turn, had her arm over his shoulder and seemed to be leaning heavily against him. Later, much later, with the wisdom of hindsight, Brenda would say that she knew all along that there must be a rational explanation for Sergeant Grimshaw's actions. But her diary entry for that night, complete with angry tear stains and multiple crossings out, shows no evidence of this at the time. The next day at the station, during ostensibly innocent questioning, Sergeant Grimshaw whilst concealing the turmoil of his emotions and the troubling dreams involving drag queens, insisted that he'd stayed in all night and watched TV. Despite Brenda's frustration, she lacked the courage to mention the letters, and it would seem that the whole episode might have been forgotten. For the next few days, Sergeant Grimshaw waited in vain in the hope of receiving another letter. Only Rosie Clatworthy, who had recognised the perfume and put two and two together, seemed to know what was going on. She smirked a lot, which irritated everyone. Over a period of days, Sergeant Grimshaw realised that he'd become the butt of occasional office humour. But fortunately, unlike Rosie, he was unable to do the arithmetic and the reasons for this remained a mystery. Life is so complicated. Love the cases, love the clauses. 
love the adverbs and the antecedents. Love the words. From ELFM. I'm the early, I'm the boy, yeah.